You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Matt Corda, who's a research associate for the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, where he co-authors the Nuclear Notebook with Hans Christensen. Previously, he worked for the Arms Control, Disarmament, and WMD Nonproliferation Center at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Matt's research interests and recent publications focus on nuclear deterrence and disarmament, missile proliferation, general mainstreaming, and alliance management, with regional concentrations on Russia and the Korean Peninsula, two places we might want to talk about today. <laughs> So welcome, Matt. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks so much for having me. So I, I, I tend to ask this question about anyone in, in a career in this field or any field with national security implications, um, but particularly the nuclear field, because looking at you, you're relatively young, and so you didn't probably grow up like I did at the very tail end of the Cold War. You probably, you look like you post-date that a little bit. So it's even more interesting to me, like what led you down the path to be focused on nuclear weapons? Because it's not like something that you kind of grew up fearing um, where a lot of your generation is doing counterterrorism work right now, right. <laughs> or you know, join after you know, the National Security Committee after 9-11, you went in a different direction. You're doing great power struggle and nuclear weapons. What, what got you interested in this topic? Uh, yeah, so, I, um, so in my, my undergrad, um, I'm Canadian. I studied at the University of Toronto, and I uh, studied World War II history and genocide studies um, you know, as it relates to that. And... Uh, you know, atomic bomb features quite heavily in World War II history. And then, you know, when I went to go do my master's at King's College in London, um, I was doing the war studies program and they make you sort of like rank all of your courses uh, uh, from the ones you're most interested in until the ones you're least interested in. And at the top, you know, I ranked all of these like World War II uh, type courses, very history focused. And then at the bottom was all of this nuclear stuff because it seemed very technical and difficult and sciencey and I, I didn't really know anything about it. Um, and then, you know, about 10 minutes before the, the course system locked, I thought, you know, I should be doing a master's in something, uh, totally different than what I did right. my undergrad in. And I just flipped the list completely from start to finish, ended up in, um, nuclear courses, uh, and, you know, to some extent you mentioned counterterrorism, um, how that sort of overlaps with counterterrorism. So CBRN terrorism, mm -hmm. um, things like that. And then, uh. Uh, basically just fell in love with it and have continued on in that capacity. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of people who do this and then decide to do something else. I mean, it's, kind yeah. of, it's, so, it's just a passion. You have to have, it's, it's multidimensional, it's multidisciplinary because 
you of course need to have the science background, even mm -hmm. if it's a superfluous, like you need to understand some of the basics of the physics exactly. behind it or your toast. Yeah. It's a lot of history, of course, but there's a lot of international relations mixed in and even some psychology kind of understanding deterrence. Mm -hmm. I mean, strategic deterrence is all about getting inside somebody's head and yeah. understanding it. And, and so you, it's a lot of work. And if you're not passionate about it, then you shouldn't even get close to exactly. it. And so you find a lot of crazy people, and, and, <laughs> and I say that in the most wonderful way, uh, working in this, this, this field. Um, and you actually work for a really interesting organization, the Federation of American Scientists. It used to not be called that. Mm -hmm. She called the Federation of Atomic Scientists, and and anyone who studied World War II and the early Cold War knows this organization because it was made out of the remnants of the Manhattan Project. A lot of the scientists who built the atomic bomb created this group. Actually, fifteen different smaller organizations that came together yep. to make one bigger organization. I wonder how much of the history of FAS is kind of taught to new people, and how much it's kind of just branched out into different things from where it was back in 1945. Yeah, uh, so, you know, it's something that's definitely uh, something that is always part of the conversation when we're, when we're working for FAS and when we're, when we're involved in FAS projects. You know, we're really connected to that history and particularly the project that I work on, the Nuclear Information Project, you know, that's been running for, for decades at this point. Um, you know, collecting open source information about nuclear weapons and, and publishing those estimates for, for kind of public consumption. And that's really kind of what FAS has been about for so long, you know, bringing the nuclear conversation to the public and, and um, getting people really interested in these topics and trying to enrich the debate wherever we can. Um, you know, since then, you know, it, the FAS has its roots in, in kind of this nuclear history that's so, so interesting, born out of the Manhattan Project, as you say. Um, and then since then, you know, it's uh, expanded quite a bit. So now we have like you know, this really broad mandate. We're working on all of these new projects recently. We have a new president, um, Ali Nouri, who is you know fresh out of uh, Congress essentially, and and has really worked on trying to bring science advocacy back into the congressional conversation. Um, and so you know we have a lot of new projects about like AI and uh, you know bringing. Um, the public, uh, like connecting public with Congress via FAS. Right. So, you know, if people have questions about um, different scientific uh, issues that are going on in Congress, you know, hearings and things like that, we can help get those questions answered and then translate those back to people. So we have all these kind of like new initiatives going on in addition to uh, kind of the core nuclear work that we still do every day. Well, well the Nuclear Notebook, which you co-author, um if you go to the Bulletin Atomic Scientist website, a lot of it is paywalled because they got to make a you know they got to make a living. But this is not. Yep. This is something that you can get to. So if anyone out there wants it's to free. see, it's free. Yeah. It's it's about as good as it gets. From certainly, in, unless you're reading the Presidential Daily Brief, this is as close as you're going to get to what's happening around the world. Uh, this is certainly something that professionals in the in the field are reading, even if they have access to classified information. So this is something you can get to for free. You're not going to get paywalled. It's it's basically monthly at this point, where you uh, one month it's China, one month it's Russia, mm -hmm. one month it's the U.S. and kind of works yeah. way around. Uh, it's certainly a resource that's available uh, for everyone. Um, and how long have you been working on that? Uh, so I started at FAS um, about a year ago. It's almost my one year anniversary, um, which is great. So we've kind of done uh, within that year um, almost all of the nuclear weapon states, um, with the exception of. Uh, I think Israel, although I've, I've done some other writing on that, um, and the UK, uh, but I think we've done everyone else. Um, 
and we're about to publish a, a new one on tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, so that one's more thematic, so that yeah. could be interesting as well. And we're going to want to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, what, what I want to do is kind of hit some major... This is a really interesting time to be having this conversation because there's a hell of a lot going on. And actually, we're recording this a couple of days before it goes up, which we always do. And by the time this goes up next Tuesday, we, this conversation will be completely obsolete. There's <laughs> yep. so much now is happening at such a rapid pace. It's usually not the case. When you're talking about nuclear policy, it's mm. kind of drawn out, but there's so much happening simultaneously. So let's start with a explosion in Russia yeah. that oh, um, at first was the Russian government, of course, lying through their teeth as they know. The knee-jerk reaction is, even when you don't need to lie, they find a way to lie about it, is this had nothing to do with any kind of nuclear or anything. It was a chemical explosion. Um, but once radiation uh detectors started going off and once they kind of got called out on it uh they had to admit uh that it involved uh what they consider to be a state of the art which we can talk about how ridiculous that is <laughs> yeah. uh new weapons system um essentially a nuclear cruise missile mm -hmm. yep so uh, it's interesting it's actually you know it's a new weapon system but it's kind of this like brought back from the dead old right. system um you know so uh, the u.s actually had a similar kind of concept for for a missile uh project pluto was the name and um the missile was essentially you know what the russians are doing right now where it's kind of this like nuclear ramjet idea where you know uh air comes into the front of the missile it gets superheated by this onboard flying nuclear reactor which is bonkers and then you know blasted at the back to create thrust and uh you know this was a big thing in like the 50s and, and early 60s until it was canceled because it was you know a completely nonsense idea um the i think it was in like 2013 or something I, there was a pamphlet that the nevada um security yep. site put out talking about you know reminiscing about project pluto and in the pamphlet it says uh you know, if this had been built, it would have irradiated and deafened and just like killed anyone in the flight path because it's just exposing everyone to, to radiation. Well, in 1950s technology, 1960s with no shielding and stuff, maybe the Russians have figured that out. Um, I, find it, I find it hard to believe. Yeah, I know. yeah, obviously not because they can't even figure out how to keep it from exploding. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. So I guess I think it was the ninth. Um, you know, there was this big explosion, as you say, and and. Uh, Rosatom, who's the you know the Russian nuclear agency, they said it had something to do with liquid propellant exploding that does not cause radiation. Um, so you know, and now we're seeing uh, background spikes in radiation. And um, I think even just today, there was a Russian scientist who uh, put out a general warning for people in the area: um, don't fish yeah. in those areas. You know, um, and I think he he said it was a kind of a national crime, I think is the way he described it, which is, I thought, really interesting. Um, but yeah, it's really unfortunate. You know, it looks like this idea is just really not worth pursuing. Uh, well, what's interesting is there, there's a, a tweet from President Trump where I guess Putin went after, you know, him for the idea that, uh, well, you don't even have one of these, and at least ours, you know, is kind of better than the one that you don't have. And then President Trump says, well, ours is better than yours. Oh, my God. The problem is we don't have one. No. <laughs> no, um, I mean, we, we had God. one. You know, <laughs> we can re revitalize Project Pluto, but even the guys out at the NTS in Nevada don't want to do that. Um, is this just a knee-jerk reaction from the president, or is this some top-secret ramjet program <laughs> that we don't know about? Oh, that'd I mean, be wild. There are advantages. I mean, you can understand on face why they thought this was a good idea, because mm. legit, this thing could fly for months in the air, 
you would never see it launched. Essentially, it would be invisible flying around the Earth until you needed to use it. Yeah. Unless it crashed or, yeah. you know... <laughs> the much more likely scenario. Much more likely yeah. scenario, as we've seen. I mean, I think that when, they were te- when the Russians were testing this without the nuclear payload, when they were testing the cruise missile, the furthest it flew was 22 miles before it crashed. Yeah. And so that, that's not good. Um, and that's from, like, last year. So this is not a test in the 1950s. That's no. last year. I, I, from an intelligence perspective, I, I think this is interesting because... Not only do they lie just because they can, um, but even their own people are not getting the right information. They're lying to their own people. You don't need to watch Chernobyl to know this. This is not the Soviet thing. This is a Russian thing. Their own people, they're passing this information to them. It makes intelligence collection on this very, very difficult. And I have to piece this together through, you know, seeing through this disinformation. Mm -hmm. So it's been really interesting, actually, to watch the kind of open source um, Twitter universe kind of come to life. And, you know, the people who have really, really taken the lead on this are, are Jeffrey Lewis and his team at the, the Center, for Non-Proliferation, sorry, Center for Non-Proliferation Studies um, in Monterey. And, you know, I think it was within a couple hours of, of uh, this thing exploding, you know, immediately there were so many things that they found relating to, uh, you know, the ship that was used to essentially, like, pick up the, you know, pieces of the, the missile off the ocean floor um, you know, looking at the CTVTO sensors, so Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization, they have these sensors all around the world, um, which are really useful for detecting, you know, kind of unusual uh, seismic activity or, you know, other sorts of activity. Um, and it was great, like, they were really able to put together this really coherent picture of, of what happened, despite the fact that, you know, we don't really know anything about this missile in terms of its its technical specifications. So it's, you know, it's hard to tell, um you know, the extent of, you know, radiation leakage or, or what exactly the missile is. We've barely, you know, seen coherent imagery out of it. Um, but it's been great to see, you know, the amount that we can get from open source information. Here. It's got a wonderful Bondian name of the Skyfall. The Skyfall, yeah. yeah oh, my God. It really brings it to, you know, one of these evil villain yeah. things <laughs> with the Skyfall missile. Um, it's also interesting to me that, I guess a day or two before this happened, there was another massive explosion in Russia, which was a munitions plant. I'm not sure if you saw the footage from that. No, if you I haven't, checked it out. Yeah. And it looked like a nuke. It, was, it probably was close to a tenth of a kiloton. It made a mushroom cloud. You could actually, a visible, oh. actual seismic you know, wave came out of it. And then, for, for, so a lot of us saw this, and then we heard about the thing with the Skyfall, and we're like, oh, shit, right? <laughs> is this the same thing? And it turned yeah. out it was different. And right. That really kind of brought a lot of people's attention in one direction. The Russians actually were using it. You know, oh, no, no, it's, it's just like the other explosion. That was mm. doing, oh, interesting. You know, fuel, fuel, you know, fuel uh, liquid fuel or, or emission right. stuff. Um, it, I, I just, burning through the disinformation it has been a full-time job uh, for most people when it comes to the Russians. Yeah. That, that period of openness, which was like 20 minutes in 1991, when they were willing to kind of open their stuff. It's just long gone at this point. Hmm. Well, it's, I guess, like, you know, this sort of reinforces, it's, you know, it's been really frustrating over the past uh, few years to kind of uh, watch the relationship sort of, you know, disintegrate, really. And, and we're now really clinging to the last vestiges of, of transparency with them that we have, um, especially in relation to, to nuclear arms control. You know, we're down to our last treaty. Yeah, we'll talk about um, at that. this point, which, I, which I'm sure we'll get yes, to. Yeah. But it's you know that's that is literally the last thing uh, in terms of nuclear weapons that actually 
you know, keeps us kind of aware of each other's stockpile. And, and uh, it's been really frustrating to watch this administration really seems like they have no interest in extending it, despite it just being the, the lowest hanging of fruits. Uh, <laughs> We're going to get to that because mm. that, that's, that is literally the last hurrah. So let's talk yeah. about the second to last hurrah, which just ended this week. Mm. Um, the INF Treaty, which uh, we knew this was going to end. It wasn't a surprise to us because both sides indicated you know, six months ago or so that this was just not going to get renewed. The Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty signed in 87 by Reagan and Gorbachev. When you learn, when, when you do nuclear history, when you learn about, this is, this is a treaty that almost gets overlooked because the SALT treaties and the START treaties and all this other stuff, and you look at the summits like Reykjavik and like almost got rid of all of them and then like, ah, oh, they signed this INF. But it's, it's monumental. This, was the, oh, this yeah. wasn't limiting weapons. This wasn't reducing them kind of piecemeal. This was eliminating an entire category of nuclear weapons. This was, for many people, the treaty that could possibly be the beginning of pushing back or putting the genie back in the bottle of nuclear weapons. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's been really frustrating to watch it uh, slowly die over you know, a period of, of six months, and then you know, even, even earlier than that, um, with you know, violations and things like that. But um, you know, it's a treaty that, that has really done so much work. Um, you know, not only did it, as you say, like eliminate a whole category of missiles, right? That's um, it's like thousands of missiles at the time uh, were eliminated. It established this great series of on-site inspections at the time. And, and even though those ended, there was still uh, a great deal of transparency that existed between, um, you know, Russia and the United States. Um, and it was continuing to ban these missiles and, and would have done so, you know, indefinitely, right? Like there was no end date to the treaty. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it just, it just died. <laughs> well, and it's not like all of a sudden it means that we can't have nuclear weapons. There's still multiple categories of weapons that we can have, yeah. including the really, really big ones on, <laughs> on the ICBMs and on SLBMs and the ones you drop from planes and the ones you put on cruise missiles and everything else. You just can't have ones that have a range between 500, is it 55? Yeah. Off the top of my head, 5,500 mm -hmm. kilometers which essentially it's Euro missiles, right? You know, exactly. it's like the yeah. old Pershing twos, the SS twenties that mm -hmm. kind of freaked everybody out in the eighties. Everyone said, we don't need these. If you don't need them in the 1980s at the height of the cold war, what the hell do you need them for today? Exactly, right? right. That's a crazy. And, and of course the argument the Americans are making is that the Russians have been cheating their ass off at this, which is true. There's no question. They've been developing intermediate nuclear weapons mm -hmm. for years at this point. I guess the estimate is they have several battalions now. Yeah, so I think uh, the we've estimated, um, and I think this has been confirmed by you know different U.S. sources. Um, I think there's four battalions uh, in like different parts of the country, um, kind of co-located with with the Iskander battalions that are uh, also there in different bits. And so, you know, that roughly uh, gives you like about a hundred uh, missiles, including the spares uh, for reloads right. and things like that. Um, so they're already out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I, I never want to defend Russia, but they arguably, and they will argue, that the reason they said they had to have these weapons is because we, another important treaty actually that doesn't get enough attention is the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, where we were signatory to, and then in the early 2000s, the Bush administration said, what ABM treaty? We don't care about the ABM <laughs> treaty. We're gone. This, more than anything else, pissed off the Russians. Yeah. And it's now coming to roost because their argument is the ABM systems that we deploy to Poland could be used as offensive weapon systems, and therefore they need their own and kind of this 
And yeah, you can look through the subterfuge by Putin, but if you take the fact that we're in the West or American Canadian out of it, it's got a point. Oh yeah, yeah, and and you know not only um, uh, just European systems, but you know homeland missile defense. You know the the interceptors that are based in Alaska and California. Um, you know those were the ones that were put in. You know right after nine eleven, it was in um, two thousand and two. Bush administration really hastily put them in uh, before the system was uh, technically, let's say, capable. Um, you know the testing record now, uh, almost twenty years on, is is really abysmal. Um, even under you know, ideal testing it's conditions, perfect. right? You know, it's flying straight. It's yeah. not maneuvering. There's no decoys. Yeah, it's, when it doesn't rain, right? Like, right, it's, yeah. right? like it's all that kind of stuff. So, um, uh, and yet when you hear Putin's statements, he will say, you know, 2002 is when the arms race kicked off or the, the second arms race, right? Um, and he'll say, you know, the ABM treaty was the absolute cornerstone of the uh, arms control regime. The U.S. Um, pulled out you know, withdrew, killed it, whatever, um, without any regard to us. They didn't listen. Now you, now you have to listen to us, right? I think those are, those are his words. Is this bluster? I mean, this is somewhat mimicking what Gorbachev said in 86, that SDI was the reason that we couldn't get along. And, and, and if you look at it, there's a reason they hated SDI. is because it demonstrated how back-ass words they yep. were, especially in computer technology. That's no longer the case. So is Putin just kind of using this as an excuse, or are they that afraid of ABM systems? Because they're not any further along than we are in developing these. Yeah, I think, you know, when you hear the Russian statements about missile defense, they're always talking like 10, 15 years in the future, yeah. right? So they're always saying, um, you know, the, the U.S. is saying, you know, uh, these are not aimed at you. They have nothing to do with you. These are just for, uh, you know, Iran, North Korea. Um, and then Russia says, okay, maybe not, but you're laying the groundwork for what is... Uh, what could potentially be a really robust uh, missile defense shield, you know, down the line. Um, and they'll quote numbers at you that like sound really fantastic, but it's, but it, you know, that's like, that is what's in their statement. And so, you know, I don't, I, I don't think they're bluffing. Like, I think, I think missile defense has always been something that um, Russia has hated. I think for good reason. Um, I'm also a missile defense ske a skeptic, you well, know. Sure. Um, it's um, all, a single one of them works, then I'll, I'll yeah, be exactly. as well. Um, but, I, but like, I understand the, the concern. And I think, you know, sometimes the United States wants to have it both ways where they'll say, you know, uh, these, will, these will defend us against Iran and North Korea. They're not aimed at you. Um, but it's like how, like, how do you walk that line, right? right. Like, how do, like how, when you're a country on the other side of that, how do you interpret... Um, what missile defenses are aimed at and what they're not aimed at, right? right. So that's, that's always really difficult. Well, and of course, from our perspective, even though the Russians have been cheating on the, in the INF Treaty, it's like saying, you know, someone is breaking the law, so let's set the law on fire. Yeah, instead exactly. of actually trying to pull them back and say, okay, you know, you need to stop doing this. Like, we're, we're so ready to sanction everybody else. Uh, we the Iran deal and everything else. This was something that actually was working, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can argue that JCPOA was working. We can talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. But we know for a fact the INF Treaty has been working for 20-plus years. And, yeah, they might be cheating on it, but we know they are, right? The whole point was verification and the fact that we know they're cheating on it. So let's hit them hard for cheating on mm -hmm. it and bring them back to the negotiating table yeah. instead of saying, eh. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, this goes against... Um, what the Trump administration's initial posture was with regards to the INF Treaty. Right? When they came in, they had um, 
something called the integrated strategy. And then this was, it was also kind of mentioned in the, in the nuclear posture review that came out afterwards, but they said, you know, Russia is cheating. We are going to find a way to bring them back into compliance using diplomatic measures, military measures, right? So maybe um, commencing research on kind of different kinds of systems to counter those, and then economic measures, right? Sanctioning those, um, those companies. And then uh, pretty quickly, they just gave up on that, right? And then, and then uh, decided instead to just kill the treaty altogether. And by doing so, you know, as you say, you get rid of pretty much your only mechanism for accountability, even if the Russians aren't going to come back into compliance, right? You, you, you at least you maintain a strategic dialogue. You can have um, the special verification commission, right? Like there's, there are ways to, at the very least, uh, bridge the gap in some way right now we just we have nothing right so it's um that can be really frustrating and and uh at the same time you know you kind of by removing the treaty you just leave both sides completely unconstrained right which what's the point <laughs> all right well the russians were already unconstraining themselves and now it looks we've already announced plans to start developing yeah. new intermediate oh man it didn't take long right no. it was literally like the day after and it's, it's quick right like it, it's not a crazy engineering thing right we've to, known how to do it for quite some yeah. time well the the issue is a political one it's where are you going to deploy them yeah i don't i don't I mean, these are intermediate right you got to put them nearby and i can't imagine any country in nato is going to agree to that i can't imagine you talk about asia i can't imagine the philippines or japan or or, or south korea is going to agree to that because that makes them ground zero right i mean that, that that's basically like putting a big target a big bullseye on them you know, people talk about Guam. I would never want to be deployed to Guam all of a sudden if we're going to, I mean, it's bad enough as it is. So why build these things if you can never use them? That's a, a great question. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I, I'm totally with you on the, on the NATO front. You know, back when, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s when the INF Treaty, you know, hadn't been, yet been signed and, you know, you had the Euro missiles crisis, um, NATO almost tore itself apart by the deployment um, by the U.S. deployment of these missiles, right? Like there were huge protests in the streets, right? Now, you know, it's, I see some people saying like, "Oh, we should we'll just redeploy to NATO." How, right? Like, you, do you want to you want to redo the '80s because that was horrible, right? And then well, also that, that falls right into Putin's hands. Who wants to break exactly. up NATO? Right? Oh my the God. idea of you know let's put let's put some wedges in between these countries mm -hmm. and us trying to shove our missiles on them, especially in countries that are you know really anti-nuclear. Right? Like, yeah, like maybe they, they're NATO countries, but like ask the, you know, the Dutch or the Germans or the right. Belgians or the Italians if they want, if they want these missiles, it's like absolutely not. And then, you know, as you mentioned, Asia, which is a really good point. Um, the administration uh, was saying that they were going to be, you know, building these types of missiles for the Asia Pacific theater. Um, again, I like, where are you going to put them? Right? Like, and you know. Guam doesn't really make sense. It's a, it's a tiny island, right? So we're putting, the, we're putting ground-launched missiles yeah. in a small island. Like, what's that's the, the point? far end of the range, too. Mm. I mean, that's pretty far away. Real far. And, you know, you might as well use SLBMs at that point. Yeah. You can park a sub right outside of the whole of ocean. Right. <laughs> well, my, my issue with these is not technical. It's not about the money. It's about the psychological problem. The reason for these missiles is to decrease warning dramatically, right? Mm. You don't... You don't launch a Minuteman 3 from North Dakota because it gives them 30 minutes of warning. You want to take them out quick, you launch a new INF, an intermediate force from Poland, hmm. so you can take the Kremlin out in three right. minutes. Well, that's a real problem from my perspective. Yeah. It really amps up the kind of Cold War rhetoric from before and then just the kind of the fear. 
of a bolt out of the blue surprise strike is the only reason for these weapons. And you understand why people kind of calmed out a little bit when these weapons went away. And then you're looking at stuff like intelligence about nuclear war becomes more about prediction. It becomes mm -hmm. more about launch on warning. It becomes more about hitting them before they hit us, preemption. And that is as much as you want to be preemptive, it to kind of leaks into preventative war. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we get into stupidness. Yeah. Uh, and really, it's, it's, it's 30 minutes is, is plenty of time. And it's plenty of time to kill everybody you need to kill. And at the same time, it's plenty of time to turn something off if you need to or to get the hell out of Dodge. I don't understand why you would want to reduce that to nothing. I yeah. totally agree, right? And, you know, there, there are also, like, great arguments to be made for, um, you know, reducing even further, like, getting rid of ICBMs, right? Like, that's a thing that, that um, you can make a great argument for, you know, really reducing, really, um, sorry, increasing your, your warning time. Uh, by getting rid of those, right? Like those are also like costly, they're Cold War relics, right? So we should really be thinking creatively about ways to kind of expand our warning time as, as best as possible. Um, and, you know, this kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, there's a, a big no first use issue right now that's that's been coming up from presidential oh, debates. on my list. Let's <laughs> talk about that. I gotcha. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, you know, th like this is something that's also really important. Um, we should be always trying to think about ways to, you know, uh, reduce the possibility for like a really serious crisis or miscalculation and anything we can do in that regard is helpful so whether that's you know not building new missiles that give you like no warning time to potentially um declaring a no first use posture right like that's something uh that could help contribute to you know um you know reducing tensions right we'll be right back after this And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. How do we get this point across without sounding like tree-hugging granolas, <laughs> like no nukes? I mean, I, I think that there are ways to maintain the ability to completely wallop somebody in a second strike without being so hair trigger. And, and I think that, that that's the problem is that you get the people, uh, like basically the last five minutes of you talking, if I didn't know that you actually were a nuclear policy person, I would say, man, this guy, this guy's trying to get rid of, you know, make us completely open to an attack. Mm. You don't, get rid of the concept of the ability to strike back. I mean, you can see that almost from the people talking about the don't do the no first use, and we can kind of trickle onto that. So they want to leave us wide open. They want to let you hit let you hit Kansas and never be yeah. able to strike back. That's a, very, like, that's a bad faith argument. Too, right, it's right? a like, horrible faith yeah. argument, but I think potentially we leave ourselves open to that by not saying, look, we're not saying 
we're not going to have the ability to deter an attack slash turn Russia into a parking lot and let the Marines go in and draw the lines if they try to nuke us or anything like that, because you're going to have that hit back power if you need to. But just like during the Cold War, you don't need 40,000 weapons to do it. You don't need 22,000 you know, weapons today to do it. I mean, a single Ohio-class ballistic missile submarine is more powerful than every nation on Earth except for two, right? And that's a yep. single submarine, yep. and we have lots of them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is kind of a happy medium that no one really wants to talk about. Is that because we spend like $100,000 a minute on our nuclear system? I mean, you go back to Eisenhower and the, the, the military-industrial complex concept. I mean, I, I know that that's conspiracy theorists abound, but that's, that's real money, right? Oh, yeah, extremely. Yeah. Um, and I, I think generally in the nuclear policy community, we don't talk enough about the role that money plays in nuclear policy decisions, right? Like I think often, uh, and, and it always has, right, throughout history, right? So when, you know, when we look at the development of the U.S. nuclear posture, um, you know, we always sort of think about it in two ways. It's either uh, sort of like science up, right? So it's like, oh, we developed all, we came up with the idea for like these new missiles, and then we sort of developed a posture around it, right? We created subs, and then then we, you know, had to have that leg of the triad and things like that. Or it's the top down, right? So it's like Eisenhower had, uh, you know, this policy and then Kennedy came in and he didn't like that one and changed it to flexible right. response, right? And I think generally, like, there is a third part to this that we don't talk about enough, which is the role that um, internal bureaucracy and, and money plays in driving either both of those other two legs um, and just kind of generally our nuclear policy as a whole, right? And I think um, if you look at, even today, right? The the Trump administration wants to build this new uh, sea-launched cruise missile, right? This is something that like we used to have. It was retired by the Obama administration because it was useless, right? The Navy didn't like it. No one liked it. Um, it was expensive, and now it's it's coming back, right? And there's no strategic purpose for it. So you have to ask like, what's really like what's really driving this right. thing? Um, and I don't know, but I, it's going to be a very expensive contract, right? So like I think. It's really important to think about, you know, the kind of the third angle, which is which is money and, and domestic politics and kind of internal uh, butting heads between like the Air Force and you well, know the, the Navy and, the Navy and, and was one of the big things at the beginning of the Cold War exactly. was the idea of developing weapon systems. You end up developing redundant weapon systems because you got to please the Navy and mm -hmm. the Air Force. That's how that's, we got the Triad, right? right? And now, like you know, the Triad was created. Or the 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 reason for the Triad was kind of created like post facto, right? It was like. Oh, we, um, you know, the triad is like perfect because you've got like the bombers and they can signal and the ICBMs have like the, you know, the quick response and subs are like extra survivable. It's like, sure. But also like, that's not why we did it in the first place, right? right? <laughs> it was created and then we came up with all the reasoning for it. Well, something, let me, let me transition that with something that was created, I think, for no strategic reason whatsoever. And you can argue because I used the word tactical, there is no strategic <laughs> But tactical nuclear weapons are, are, to me, a misnomer. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. It's a nuke. Um, but that, to me, is something that military leaders from the beginning of the nuclear world all the way through now, most of them are like, please, God, don't introduce nuclear weapons into the battlefield. They're not designed for that. But from my perspective, it's a really interesting intelligence problem because how do you differentiate when the missile's on the way, if it's a tactical small-yield nuclear weapon or if it's a five-megaton city buster? And you could tell somebody, hey, no, look, we're just going after your division on the battlefield. You know, but if it's a massive nuke, how do you know, right? It looks exactly the same. How, how would we respond? There's a wonderful leadership analysis question. 
with that as well. Yeah. You know, what president, if Donald Trump is president or if Elizabeth Warren is president or who the hell knows, Vladimir Putin on the other end, are they going to differentiate between a tactical nuke and a strategic nuke? Is that going to be a game changer? Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful leadership analysis question. And would we differentiate? Would it be they used a nuclear weapon against us? I don't care how small it was. Let's kick off World War III like we always planned to. So there's wonderful intelligence questions. Oh my God, yeah. And, and it's all mixed in to these fake, I call it tactical nukes. It's just a kind of almost a euphemism mm -hmm. for just, it's a really small nuclear weapon, but yeah. it's still a goddamn nuclear weapon. And exactly. it's about the size of the one we dropped on Hiroshima in some cases. So it's not that small. Yeah. So I like, I, the, the administration wants to build, you know, what they're calling the, the low yield warhead for the, um, the Trident uh, submarine launch ballistic missile. You know, low yield is a, is a huge misnomer, as you're saying, right? Like, so the yield is sort of estimated at somewhere between five and seven kilotons. Hiroshima bomb was 15, right? That killed 100,000 people. Yeah. It's not low yield at all. Right? Like, it's, it's going to do a ton of damage. It's going to kill a lot of people. Um, so calling it low yield, I think, is like, first of all, that's already a problem. Yeah. I, I, I'm, a lot of people are trying to come up with, like, alternate names. Like, uh, I've heard the gateway nuke, right? But, like, just something to make people think that, like, this is... You know, this isn't just uh, like a pebble that we're dropping, right? right? Like, this is really serious. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, as you mentioned, like the discrimination problem between, you know, you don't know what's coming at you. Um, what, right. are you what are you going to launch in response? They're nukes red and the, yeah, the right. strategic ones blue. And exactly. they're coming out of a, an Ohio-class submarine. They look like a trident, right? You can't right. tell. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And, it's, and it's scary because, you know, just because something is lower yield relative to the rest of the U.S. arsenal, um, doesn't mean that it's any less dangerous, right? In some cases, it might be more dangerous because um, the administration is billing it as this more flexible option. More and when usable you, exa option, exactly. Is, yeah, exactly. Right? If, you're, if you're suddenly talking about usable nuclear weapons in, in a warfighting situation, um, that's really scary, right? And so uh, there was, this made, I think, big news about like a month ago or so. Um, there was this report that, um, I think it was out of the Joint Chiefs about like the new nuclear operations doctrine. Um, and it was published and then uh, quickly removed like a, a few hours later. Luckily, um, my colleague Steve Aftergood at, at FAS, he caught it and grabbed a copy and now it's, it's on the FAS website, which is great. Um, and there was a sentence in there that said something along the lines of, you know, commanders need to be prepared for how using nuclear weapons in a battlefield scenario might affect, you know, how they would want to prevail in a conflict. And like, that's a sentence that has been around kind of forever, yeah. right? Like it's not, the sentence itself isn't anything new. Like it was around under Obama and everything. Um, but what has really been freaking people out with regards to that report is that now we're operating in, in, a, in a new context, right? So now under this administration, it really seems like, like they mean it, right? Like when they're talking about, um, you know, potentially using nuclear weapons in a battlefield scenario, it's no longer just like, something we have to keep in the back of our minds. It's right. like, we're, we're, we built those things. Like they are, I think, just being built now or have just finished being built, right? And, they're, and you know, now there's a big battle in Congress over whether or not uh, the US is gonna get to deploy them, right? That'll be something that comes out in the next few months. Um, but like they have been built. And that's ridiculous, it's money, again, because the dial yield nuclear weapons, even strategic ones could be dialed down to a very low yield, quote unquote, you don't necessarily need an entirely new class of weapons to, to kind of get the same punch that you want here. And it's not like all of a sudden, you know, you're launching them from an F-15 so people know what it is. You're still launching them from a submarine. Yeah. And it, to me, it just seems like a, a, a bravado move, number one, and also a money move, number yeah. two. But 
Let's talk about no first use because you brought that up already, and that's actually mm-hmm. been popping up in, in presidential debates. A couple of the candidates have brought it up. This is a conversation that's happened now for decades because the United States has the is the only nation, the only nuclear nation that has reserved the right or has not pledged not to be a first user of nuclear weapons. We reserve the right to be a first user. Um, and our arsenal was developed for first use. See, it's hard, and as a nuclear historian, it's impossible to argue against that, the counterforce strategy that was mm-hmm. kind of the hallmark art. You can't have a counterforce strategy unless you're using them first. The whole idea, listeners out there, is counterforce means you blow up their nukes when they're still on the ground, and when their bombers are still on the ground, which means they haven't started the war yet. You're the one mm-hmm. starting the war. And the whole concept of precision guidance, right? Inventing accuracy. Oh, yeah. You don't need a nuclear weapon you can drop down through a chimney unless you're dropping it down into a nuclear silo that still has a nuke inside of it. Yeah. I'm not the one making this up. There's a great books, Inventing Accuracy is a great one about great this. And, and if you're looking at some of the, the strategies of the Cold War, so it's not like this is new. Hmm. I wonder... I already brought up this distinction between preemptive war and preventative mm-hmm. war. It's a wonder. It's a it's a very important distinction. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's too nuanced for policymakers today, and I don't mm-hmm. mean just the Trump administration. I mean the Obama administration yeah. and everybody else, because I remember the argument of Iraq. The Iraq war was this is a preemptive war. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a preventative war, and that's the same thing. Is it? But that's not. The people, the Bernard Brodies of the world, the, the people developing nuclear strategy in the 50s and 60s, under, Curtis LeMay understood the difference between preemptive war and preventative war. Preemptive war is they're, they're, they're fueling their missiles, right? Gene Hackman and Crimson Tide. They're literally about to start World War III. Preventive war is in 10 years, they might build a nuclear weapon, so let's blow them off the face of the earth, mm. like Iraq. I have a hard time, and this is where my kind of conservative side comes through, I have a hard time arguing that if we have good intelligence, sometimes human intelligence or signals intelligence, that literally Putin has ordered an attack on the United States, that we wouldn't preemptively nuke the shit out of them. I think that makes sense. I, I do think, though, that that isn't necessarily what a no-first-use policy would entail. Um, you know, in the, and I think um, to an extent, like policymakers have, have tried to make that distinction a little bit, you know, sensing an imminent attack on the United States, like a, like a very imminent attack. Um, you know, the United States has like a number of ways to deal with those attacks as well, first of all. Um, but, uh, you know, in a nuclear context, I don't think that would necessarily violate the no first use principle. Um, and I think, you know, policymakers have tried to kind of walk that distinction. It can definitely get a little fuzzy, as you say. Um, but I do think it's really important you know, uh, like the new first use is something that I support, but also something that I think ties into another really important argument, which is the idea of sole authority, right? Because these these two things are are really uh, linked very right. importantly, right? Because it's all about, um, you know, like how quickly do we need to respond to a nuclear attack, right? If you, uh, you know, that's why the chain of command was set up as it was. Right. It's why we're so ambiguous about you know, uh, reserving the right to use nuclear weapons is because, oh my God, we might need to respond like ASAP. Um, and, you know, in reality, you know, today things have, have things have changed so much. Um, as you say, like the, the Trident subs are, you know, like the third, third largest yeah. nuclear power, right? So it's, it's, it's not something like, we're not really worried about a bolt from the blue attack anymore. In which case, I think there is a, a, a great case to be made for, 
you know, both um, thinking really seriously about a no first use policy, especially given that now, you know, this is this is a, a great time to be having this conversation because it is, you know, the 74th anniversary of uh, the U.S. bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, the only times that nuclear weapons have been used in, in a wartime scenario. Um, and they should be the last time, right? Like that. Right. And, and uh, it's, it's really, I don't know, I, I, it seems very fitting to, to have this conversation now. Um, but also, you know, the sole authority thing really matters because it was set up, you know, to provide the president with a uh, completely uninterrupted chain of command for the quickest nuclear response possible. Right. I mean, the nuclear command authority, does that need to be shackled to no first use? I mean, I, there's so many you know, frightening stories <laughs> about, I mean, Nixon in 74 is one of them. You know, he's yeah. drunk every night under Watergate. <laughs> he's like, I could just kill everybody if I wanted to. And Kissinger's freaking out and Schlesinger's freaking out. But they would have no power to stop anything if he mm -hmm. really wanted to. And, you know, a, a lot of people, I think, I, I can't imagine Donald Trump would ever use nuclear weapons, but everyone's kind of afraid of like, if someone pisses him off on Twitter, he's yeah, nuke somebody. I mean, he talks knows, about right? all the time, right? right? He said he'd like end the war in Afghanistan in like well, ten minutes if he wanted to. I think he was making a point that he wasn't going to do that. Which, yeah, which is that, that, that's I think that was you know I think we kind of jumped on that we shouldn't have, but mm. um, but the, the kind of nuclear launch authority thing is interesting because we have no idea what the policies of China, Russia, North Korea when it comes to who has the ultimate command authority. I would probably imagine they're pretty centralized. They probably are as centralized as it gets. I imagine Vladimir Putin's not asking for permission to use nuclear weapons. I imagine Chairman Xi is not asking for and certainly Kim Jong-un mm. is probably not asking for permission. Now, you could argue they're more stable, perhaps, than certain individuals. Um, <laughs> but you would think that the reason to have nuclear launch authority in the hands of a president is the idea of launch on warning. The idea is that you are... You got a launch now. Or you're not going to be around to order the launch mm. in, in ten minutes, and like you said, the bolt of the blue thing is probably not happening anytime soon. And and our intelligence is so much better than it was. Oh, yeah. I don't just mean human intelligence. I mean satellites and massive and sensors and everything else. To where, you know, I, I think that that explosion that I told you about that you I, you should go check out mm. was picked up by our satellites that were you know checking for launches, and mm. it was an explosion of a munitions factory in Russia. Right. We're good at this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so maybe there is a conversation to be had. But mm -hmm. I, I think that you can't change 70 years of policy yeah. in 10 minutes. And you certainly can't change it because you don't like the president. No, no, no. That's yeah, true. And, I, I, to be and fair, I'm not saying you are doing oh, no, that. I I'm saying that that's the, there's a big push now. Like Trump's crazy. Like you can't change the no, policy. No. I would advocate for this yeah. regardless of who yeah. the president is. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, on the, the notes about other countries um, – you know, North Korea sort of aside, we actually, I think, have a, a somewhat decent amount of visibility into how other countries, um, how their national command authorities work. You know, so like in Russia, um, like the, I would, I would imagine the ultimate decision lies with Putin, but we know that at least from, you know, from various statements that have come out that there are other individuals who are uh, in the room well, and three footballs, I think, right? right. Yeah. And, and, you know, some can be overruled and some can't. Um, and so, you know, like China has their policy seems to be set up in a way that's nuclear weapons are, you know, quite political. They're not meant for war fighting. You know, they're very much like a last resort thing. They, they do have a very, uh, robust no first use right. policy, right? It's like, it does feel like there are other countries who are, who are ahead of the United States yep. on this. Um, and 
Is this American exceptionalism? Yes. Yeah, we want to be different. We want to be I'm Canadian. I have no, yes. no comments on American exceptionalism. But let me, let me, we could talk for two hours on this. I don't want to keep you for the entire day. I do want to talk about New Start. Mm-hmm. Um, policies moving forward because the only, the last, the only thing left of all, Ronald Reagan is spinning his grave. Because all the work that he did with every summit, working with Gorbachev for all this, I mean, this is going back to Nixon spinning in his grave. The idea of creating salt and everything moving forward about trying to rein in the arms race mm-hmm. and the nuclear, you know, Armageddon possibilities between the United States and now Russia. This is decades of work that is going to be completely undone in 2021 yeah. when New Start expires and there's no, there's no indication whatsoever that anything's going to be done. Literally. The day it expires, we can build 15,000 nuclear weapons if we want to, and so can the Russians. It's, it's Wild West again. It's 1985 mm-hmm. again. That's ridiculous. I mean, that, that seems to be really problematic. Um, and on the other hand, this doesn't seem to be Trump. This seems to be John Bolton. Yeah, very much. Um, and you can come at me all you want, listeners. The, the mustache is just going to take it on this one because this is, he is the treaty killer. Yep. He hates this stuff. No, absolutely. And it's turning back the clock 30 years. Yeah. And, and you know, he's been the one that's been the most vocal about this. Like, Trump hasn't really said that much about New yeah. Start. Um, but Bolton is the one that's always on record uh, when people ask about, you know, what's going to happen in New Start. And he says, I think he said a couple weeks ago, he said, it's unlikely it'll be extended. Why? Right? Like, this is the, the easiest possible thing to extend, right? It doesn't require, um, you know, it doesn't have to go through Congress. It literally is the, the stroke of a pen. Um, it is, and I, I mentioned earlier, it's, it's such low-hanging fruit. It provides such open, you know, transparency dialogue between the United States and Russia. It's now the last, the last treaty that's in place for that sort of thing. And uh, there's really no reason for it to go away, right? It's not like the United States is, um, needs to increase its arsenal, right? In fact, the United States, both the United States and Russia are actually reducing the overall, um, their overall nuclear stockpiles. There's no reason to suddenly have no constraints, right? So there's, it doesn't make any sense other than the fact that, uh, very simply, John Bolton, as you say, is, is the treaty killer, right? He doesn't like anything that could be perceived to uh, have a negative effect on U.S. sovereignty in some right. way. It's the sovereignty right? versus internationalism versus yeah. nationalism. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the, the U.S. and the Russians have exponentially more missiles and weapons than anyone else. I mean, the Chinese are a cl- like a far distant fourth or fifth, right? They're, I mean, so they're France third, is third down right? with. So China oh. has is out, sorry, yeah, I, I misspoke. Um, so China is about to surpass okay. France, um, but uh, you know, but even then, we're talking about you know a couple hundred, right. You know, warheads. The U.S. and Russia have about like six thousand, right. right? So it's you know, everyone. Uh, I've seen a lot of hype about. Um, you know, China like increasing its arsenal a little bit. You know, call me to when they 280, have right? yeah, yeah. Call me when they have six thousand. We'll right. talk, right? Like we can, <laughs> we can talk about redundancy and fratricide. We can put seven, <laughs> seventeen, eighteen warheads for every single yeah. one of there. Not that we would, but yes, it, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, look at the North North Koreans, right? I think we have to accept the fact that yes, they're nuclear power, but they may have fifty. Hmm? We we have seven, six thousand, and of course, in storage, we could pull out a bunch more if we needed to, and. Jesus, we invented the damn things. We could build more if we had to. That's kind of what the Trump administration is calling for, right? Is the ramping that in Hanford still exists and Oak Ridge still exists and, you know, Los Alamos is still there. And, you know, that this is not something that we forgot how to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of, um, 
don't know the word. There's a lot of hype around, you know, the fact that we've let the the kind of nuclear infrastructure kind of atrophy in the you know in the 90s and 2000s. That's that's kind of the the standard narrative. Um, but you know, like as you say, like all these things still exist. You know, they can be spun up when needed, right? Like it's not like uh, the, there was an article in the New York Times that um, you know Brett Stevens put out the other day where he's talking about the U.S. needs more nukes, and he uh, described the arsenal as decrepit. It's like come on it's it's not right like it's it's not like the united states doesn't need more nukes um the arsenal isn't like floundering right it's in fact we should be downsizing right because we don't need the united states doesn't need everything that it has well it's not like it, when the cold war ended and we went over and looked at some of the the silos in the former soviet union they're full of water and they never <laughs> no you know in north dakota the minimum three silos they're pretty they're pretty ship shape right they're gonna launch if you turn the key mm-hmm. And they're going to hit their targets, probably. And that's, of course, God forbid we ever have to do them. But they work well enough to be a deterrent, and that's really what they're designed to do. And sort of shit true for the Ohio-class submarines and the, the B-2s, now the B-21s and all that. They, like, no one's attacking us anytime soon because they know what will happen if they do. That's the whole point of nuclear weapons, again, from this granola guy on this side of the table. Um, and that's what brings me to the last thing I want to talk about. And I don't want to get too political on this because you cannot talk about Iran oh, without just walking <laughs> down the political tightrope. Yeah. But from the perspective of FAS, not you didn't have to give your own permission. You can give your own, your own perspective mm-hmm. or FAS. The JCPOA pullout seems to be a boneheaded mistake at yeah. this point. Yeah, I don't. Totally. I don't care if you're anti-Trump, pro-Trump, everything else. It even if it wasn't perfect. Mm. It just gave, now pulling out of it just gave Iran free reign. And now they're literally doing what we were worried they were going to do beforehand. And this is kind of the classic pattern of this administration, which is uh, just instigating crises, you know, just where they they do not need to happen. And doing this self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing happened with North Korea, right? Where you see it's like, oh, we we don't want to, you know, we don't want them to become too belligerent. And so we'll do this thing that like instigates some kind of international incident. Oh my God, right? Like this... Uh, it doesn't make any sense, right? So, uh, you know, as you say, I completely agree. You know, JCPOA, um, it was a deal that was working. Um, the IAEA, right, the international body that's charged with monitoring Iran's compliance, certified repeatedly Iran was in compliance with the treaty. Um, there's no reason for it to have gone away. Um, and in doing so, it caused a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, pressure on U.S. European allies, right? Right. So that that you know you have now issues where Iran has exceeded the limits in the treaty. Um, the U.S. has restored sanctions, right? Like none of neither of those things was helpful. Um, at the same time, now you have the Europeans who are upset with the with the Americans, right? Like none of this is is well. Internally, Rouhani is now being held liable for this because he said, "No, we can trust the Americans. Mm-hmm. We can kind of sign this deal. We can moderate. We can reach back out." Yeah. And now he looks like an idiot. Yeah, because he trusted us. Well, he trusted one administration, and and now he's being kind of getting bitten in the ass by the other one. And that's um, for the hardliners. This is just Christmas. Well, not Christmas. Long war. This is this is a gift uh, for them because Rouhani was kind of had the trust of okay, we're going to kind of give you enough leash to hang yourself on this one. And it looks like he's in real problems now because of the fact that we've gone back against this. Yeah, it's. Um... It's really concerning, you know, and now we're seeing this ramp up of tensions, you know, in the past few months alone, um, we're seeing uh, Iran willing to take more risks because I think they feel backed into a corner. Mm-hmm. Um, Pompeo and Bolton are, are uh, you know, known to be pretty, you know, pretty hawkish, pretty 
anti-Iran, very driven by ideology, right? And they're, uh, to a large extent, you know, really inflaming this this crisis. Um, and you know, it has nuclear dimensions, um, which is really concerning. So, uh, you know, I would, um, you know, I've seen. In the most recent debates, you know, Iran hasn't like really come up. I would hope foreign policy hasn't really come up. Um, I would love to see what some of the the candidates are saying about, um, you know, what is the plan? Like what like what is our nuclear strategy? Right, not even right. just well, our. That's yeah. That we haven't had a conversation about that in quite some time. Yeah, exactly. Decades and decades. But like you know, not only just on like the diplomacy front, but like what is our force structure? Like right. what are we do? Like how are we engaging with our nuclear armed adversaries or our partners? You know. There, it's it is actually one of the few things that the president actually has control over. Like we talk about, you know, everything's been about healthcare, right. which is great. Like healthcare is wonderful. As a Canadian, you know, I can I can speak <laughs> on that forever. Um, but like that has to go through Congress, right? Foreign policy and, and nuclear policy in particular is something that is like very top down. And I really think it's very important that these issues keep getting, um, you know, as much public traction as they can. Uh, yeah, so I, I appreciate you you having me on and and helping me, uh, you know bring this forward whenever well, I, I mean that's the thing i mean like if you historians have looked back again you talk you've been brought up some of these terms like massive retaliation and flexible response mm-hmm. this wasn't historians making names for this stuff <laughs> these were actually the strategic policies yeah. of these presidents right they came out and said hey look here's how we're going to do things right can anyone be more flexible eisenhower was going to cut the conventional army down to next to nothing yeah. and just basically say if you attack us we're going to send everything we got at you right this was a stated policy it's not historians working very hard they're mm-hmm. giving us this information but if you said, what is the nuclear posture of the Obama administration or the Bush administration or even going back to Clinton or Bush one, Reagan's the last one probably that had a, OK, I think I know what the policy is. Mm. That to me is, is problematic because now we're getting back to where nuclear weapons are back in the conversation. We're getting back to having the conversation about, you know, why are they different than other weapons? Mm-hmm. I mean, Donald Trump asked that question, but so did Harry Truman. Right. I mean, it's not like. He's the only one never asked that question, but there's an answer to Harry Truman, mm. right? No one really answered Donald Trump in, the, in, in a kind of a, a way that I guess convinced him right. that they were dramatically different weapons than just conventional. Uh, and so I see that as a real problem moving forward, and that we we can't really identify what the strategies are no. of these yeah. people. Um, and with Iran, now you've gotten to the point where Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is on Twitter and and he's talking about Colin Kaepernick and he's giving. <laughs> I mean, University of Michigan football. What the hell is going on in the oh, world man. today? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So that's a great place to end. Um, <laughs> Matt, I mean, there's a thousand things we could keep talking about. We'll, mm-hmm. Hopefully, we'll have you on again in the future. That would be great. Your, your work on open source stuff is really cool. Uh, so I, I, I had it on the damn list to talk about, but it just got sucked <laughs> into this conversation. So we'll have to Next do time. it again in the future. So uh, check out uh, Matt Corda's writings uh, all over the FAS website, but also other places like The Nation and, and, and um, uh, where he's written about Again, the end of the INF Treaty and other things about no first use and things like we talked about today. Obviously, go check out the Nuclear Notebook and the Bullets and Atomic Scientist. It is free. It is about as good as it gets without having a top secret Q clearance. <laughs> uh, so, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today on SpyCast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.